Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Jonathan McGarrion, a host for New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Launay about his recent book, Savages, Romans, and Despots, Thinking About Others from Montaigne to Herder, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. Welcome to the show, and thanks very much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So the book opens with an examination of early modern thinkers as they grapple with the stages of civilizational development in history. And so as I read it, the book centers around the ways in which early modern thinkers came to think of Europe comparatively through a series of others, both temporally, geographically, and ethnically. Tell us a bit about the central questions the book asks and the thesis that it proffers to answer them. Well, <clears throat> I would um, I would expand that beyond simply Europe to modern Europe, uh, and I I begin with the notion that neither the no, neither the idea of Europe nor the idea of modern are are self evident. I suppose a lot of it goes back to my my early childhood where I would look at a map of the world and North America, South America, Africa made intuitive sense, at least on a Mercator projection. But how did it come to be that this little, little peninsula got to be a continent where this whopping mass uh, we call Asia also got to be a continent. Your didn't seem to me to be self-evident, and, and of course it's not. Your, Europe is uh, is an imaginary location, and the question is, how did Europeans come to think of Europe as as natural? Uh, but the same is true for modern. Uh, as an anthropologist, I'm reluctant to assert that notions of past and present are human universals. But if they're not, they come very, very close. We think in terms of past and present, but modern is not the same as present. And this was true even in early modern Europe, where the opposite of modern was not traditional, but was ancient, particularly the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. And what makes modern different from the present was that there's a gulf between ancient and modern. Not all of the past is ancient. Uh, And so how did Europeans come to be modern Europeans? And and the answer is uh, these were thought in terms of opposites people who are either not European or not modern. It was only in the 19th century that these two were conflated so that people who were not European were considered not modern by definition. But this wasn't true from the 16th to the 18th century. And so the opposites of modern Europeans uh, eventually congealed into three categories that I call you know, savages, uh, Romans, actually, Greeks and Romans, and uh, Asians, associated for many with notions of, of despotism. It was in terms of these three oppositions to modern Europe that Europeans came to think of themselves as as modern Europeans, and this was, of course, a, a gradual process. And the opposition was a fluid one. What what mattered and how did it matter? And uh, along those lines, in terms of the intervention of the book, the idea that Europeans in the age of colonialism or in colonial or colonial-adjacent discourses thought of themselves in relation to the other with a capital O looms very large in this scholarship. And uh, you have discerned um, a deficiency in this scholarship. So can you tell us a little bit about 
what you saw in the scholarship and how this book seeks to problematize and correct uh, the traditional uh, historiography here? Well, of course, like so many other people, uh, I was tremendously influenced by Edward Said's Orientalism. Actually, as an undergraduate, I was uh, a student of Edward Said's for a while. So in his incarnation as a literary critic, and not as a, a political thinker. But uh, Orientalism was was tremendously important, uh, as was Said's notion that uh, notions of Orientalism uh, authorized notions of European domination over other parts of the world. Uh, my my problem with this is that uh, I think at times Said tends to essentialize this. So he 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 reads Aeschylus's Persians as an early example of Orientalism, where I would suggest that uh, the colonial domination of Persia by Greece was was quite absent from Aeschylus's thought. And even in the period of European expansion from the 16th to the 18th century, uh, European domination was obvious in certain parts of the world, in Mexico, to take perhaps one of the most flagrant examples. Uh, but not in China or Japan. Japanese throughout the Europeans, literally expelled them, uh, or, or only let a few in under uh, stringent circumstances. Of course, that that changed by by the nineteenth century. But uh, it seemed to me that. Looking at the other rather than various kinds of others uh, flattens uh, a process. And uh, the notion that this is all about uh, colonial expansion also, in a sense, oversimplifies. I, I certainly don't want to be a, a, a revisionist and suggest that it's never about colonial expansion because that too. Is, is a false assertion. But a lot of what Europeans wrote about non-Europeans was all about Europe uh, and about various kinds of debates that Europeans were having with each other rather than attempts to categorize others in order to annex them. So each chapter centers around one or two, maybe three different thinkers that you explicate. Um, and you begin with Mandeville. So can you give the listeners a brief synthesis of the work and the persona? Um, and then following up on that, in your reading, the book, uh, the book's ideological underpinning revolves around distance in terms uh, that are temporal, spatial, and spiritual. Um, so as a second part, can you just develop that a little bit and, and the argument of the chapter. Well, I, I pick Mandeville precisely uh, as a foil. He says, Mandeville is, is not in any way, shape, or form modern. Uh, Mandeville doesn't think in terms of Europe. In the 14th century, Mandeville lived in an imaginary place called Christendom and not an imaginary place called Europe. Uh, the center of the world was Jerusalem, not Europe. Uh, Mandeville himself uh, may not have existed. I, I'm certainly not uh, a scholar capable of deciding in scholars' debate whether there was a real Mandeville or not. Uh, for my purposes, it doesn't really matter. There is there is a book of Mandeville's travels, uh, 
for a long time it was considered uh, authoritative, uh, largely because large portions of Mandeville's narrative were backed up by other um, other written sources, which includes the races of humans like, um, what can I say, skyopods who hop about on one, one leg, or the blemme with uh, no head but their eyes, noses, and mouth on, on their chest, uh, and, and others. Although this is a relatively minor part of, of Mandeville's book. But there, there are other, other parts that are, are clearly derived. But there is a, a vision of the world, as I said, with a center in Jerusalem, uh, but also a notion that uh, if, if the Crusaders had been thrown out of the Holy Land, it was because they were not behaving piously enough. And so uh, half the book is about the journey to the Holy Land and, in a sense, uh, recentering the faith, a, a, a faith centered around um, the, the incarnation and, and, the, and the passion. And the other half of the book is the journey to the Antipodes, uh, and the Antipodes are the opposite of us. But uh, opposite is tremendously ambiguous. And these can be, uh, what can I say, tiny people for whom we are giants, or it can be giant people for whom we are tiny. It can be uh, cannibals with no houses and no clothing. Or, or it can be uh, people who behave piously or people who live in luxury like, like the, the Chinese. So there is this play on, first of all, what constitutes the opposite of us, but also how far we have gotten from our religious values and what we need to do to recenter them. Great. And so in the next chapter, we have found ourselves in the 16th century in France, and the analysis is around Montaigne. And by this point, uh, we're sort of you know, in, the, in the thick of the Renaissance, and the bestowal of that intellectual rupture has been that conceptions of both space and time have radically changed. And the period also witnessed what you refer to as the discovery of Europe. So can you talk a little bit about um, the intellectual milieu of this period uh, as relates to the central concerns of the book? Well, this chapter uh, and the next, of course, come from uh, the period of the wars of religion in France. And uh, the wars of religion complex wars because they didn't only pit uh, Catholics against Huguenots, but they pitted hardline Catholics against uh, royal Catholics who attempted to steer between Scylla and, and Charybdis. Uh, first of all, this made, this exploded any notion of Christendom. With the Ref Reformation, the question wasn't are you Christian or not? Is are you Catholic or Lutheran or or Calvinist or what exactly? Uh, and it's uh, it's this preoccupation, in a sense, that um, that haunts Montaigne throughout uh, all of his life. The question is how in in a period of moral upheaval. Montaigne is a Catholic and considers, in, in a sense, that the problem of Protestantism is that it has uh, plunged the nation, in, you know, the country into civil war uh, 
for articles of faith that very few people can understand. At one point he says, well, you know, if, if the conflict were reflected, were restricted to people who understood the issues, then there wouldn't be much of a problem. Uh, on the other hand, in terms of the behavior of, of the Catholics, and he doesn't even mention St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, but in, in terms of Catholic behavior, they're uh, probably worse than the Protestants, though the Protestants are hardly, hardly innocent either. And he contrasts this with the Brazilians, with the, the Tupi. He has uh, a vision of the world where the Pauls are simplicity and excellence in terms of knowledge, in terms of military value. Uh, and he associates simplicity with the Tupi and excellence with the Greeks and the Romans and uh, the present then with mediocrity, a mediocrity uh, with which he associates himself. Since I, I'm a mediocre writer, and it's it's too sophisticated for the cannibals and too too simplistic for uh, those the excellent thinkers. It's it's just for mediocre people like me. One point, you know, his metaphor is who have an ass between two saddles. Um, so these are his uh, markers to judge the present and, and to judge it, uh, what can I say, uh, relentlessly negatively. Yeah, and just to, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit there, but, you know, Montaigne to me, it seems is interesting. One for, the reason that you just elaborated, which is that he thinks very comparatively, and he also uses these um, comparisons as a yardstick against which to measure or a prism through which to speak about uh, contemporary strife in France. But a sort of, I think, separate but related aspect of what makes him um, sort of a revolutionary thinker is that there is a, a pronounced strand of relativism in these comparisons. So could you talk a little bit more about the relativistic nature of the comparisons that he makes? I'm hesitant to say that Montaigne is absolutely a relativist. I mean, at, at, at one point, he, he suggests, you know, well, in, in, terms of, in terms of absolute judgments, it's, you know, there's no reasonable way to assess. Montaigne, Montaigne has a, a deep skeptic vein. But he, he begins the whole essay with the Greek notion of barbarian. Barbarians as people who are different from us. And he questions, does the fact that people are different from us mean that they're inferior? At, at one point, uh, he, he says, well, Either either we or the cannibals are barbarian. We are so different from each other. And, and I should point out, he uses the word cannibals, whereas in French, there, there had been a distinction between anthropophagi and, and cannibals. Anthropophagi were those who ate their um, enemies as an, as an act of Revenge and, and revenge was uh, literally, in terms of the aristocracy, a, a noble reason, as opposed to out of perverse taste for human flesh. The cannibals were, were perverse. Of course, he he attributes uh, cannibalism to revenge, uh, to noble motives, but he uses this disparaging term. Precisely to say, well, we who are we to say we're better for the cannibal than the cannibals? I mean, 
we we do worse things to our enemies than kill them. We torture people, and they're our neighbors. They're our own own folk. Who who are we to judge? If we judge in terms of absolute reason, of course, eating people isn't a good thing. But if we judge, if we judge in terms of who's worse, then we don't show up that well. Yeah, and and it, it it also seems like the uh, the the resolution for this kind of thorny problem for Montaigne is to basically almost sort of throw his hands up and say, you know, these are really unanswerable questions, but the best thing to do is not to rock the boat because you know, look out the window, here are the Protestants rocking the boat, and I'd rather have tradition, whether or not it's reasonable, than uh, you know, search for reason and end up uh, with bloodshed in the process. At one point, Montaigne says, the wise person can think what he wants, but he should act the way people do where he happens to be. Now, the interesting thing is he doesn't say where they are born, but where they happen to be. And when he was traveling through Europe, he put this into practice. That is, if he he traveled through parts of Germany or Italy, then, for example, he would make a point of eating the same way that the people uh, he you know in the in the place where he happened to be were were eating, and and he would talk with Lutherans. Uh, he would attend a, a circumcision. Uh, a Jewish circumcision in in Italy. He he would uh, so his his commitment was not to stick to the way you are born with, but stick but behave conform to what other people are doing, because uh, unless you can demonstrate that your way is better. Uh, the the ill effects of rocking the boat are much more predictable than uh, than any uh, I'm, I'm looking for the English equivalent of biafe of any benefits. Well, so uh, after a very rich um, discussion of Montaigne, you turn next to Jean Baudin and his work similar to Montaigne in some respects, evinces a broadly comparative framework. And his different explora- in his exploration of different forms of government, he elaborates a theory of climates, each climate being suitable for different form of government. East is compared to West as North is compared to South. However, you say this doesn't mean that he embraces climatic determinism. So can you speak about a bit about Baudin's work and the place of climate in it and climate's relation to how he is thinking about other times and spaces. Well, first of all, I think Baudin has to be seen in terms of another development of, of French thought at the time, which was uh, French legal and, and historical thought. And this was an offshoot of the 15th century Italian Renaissance. Uh, much earlier in the Middle Ages in, in Bologna, there had been a rediscovery and resuscitation of Roman law, particularly Justinian's institutes, and the notion that this was the law. Uh, and the advantage, in a sense, for lawyers of having this Roman law was that there were a lot of terms that were unclear. And so you everybody could agree that the law was the same, but nobody could agree what it means. And this meant you needed lawyers. Uh, with the development of classical learning in, in the Renaissance, uh, you had uh, humanists who thought, well, now we can know exactly what these terms mean. And they set about looking at the institutes and realized that the institutes was a very bad patchwork quilt. Uh, different laws from different periods using different forms of, of Latin language. So the idea of the unity of Roman law 
was um, undermined. And this was of great advantage in the next century to uh, French Protestant, but also moderate Catholic thinkers who wanted to distance themselves from the Roman Church and consequently of, of Roman law. So you developed a notion that different kinds of law are appropriate to different kinds of people at different times. And this is fine, but you have to have some kind of way of differentiating. And here, um, Baudin resorts to the old Greek Hippocratic and later Aristotelian, Aristotelian system of hot, cold, temperate. Uh, the notion in medical terms that uh, cold climates uh, cause people to develop internal bodily heat to compensate uh, hot climates, internal bodily cold, uh, and that um, people in the north are physic big, physically well-developed, good with their hands, capable of drinking like fish, and not too bright. Germans. People uh, to the south are, are small, weak, but they're smart, uh, although that can also mean that they're uh, sneaky and untrustworthy. Uh, and, and consequently, people in temperate zones like, like France, uh, who are, you know, it, it's warm enough so that they're smart enough to know what to do, but cold enough that they're strong enough to do it, are, are the best suited to, to rule. Uh, what's interesting here is, of course, that this divides up rather than unites Europe and the rest of the world. Um, there, are, there are peoples, uh, Turks, Persians, Chinese, who Baudin classifies in the temperate zone, unlike people in cold or, or hot climates. Uh, notice, note, by the way, that the Germans and the Spanish are both Habsburgs. Uh, who were at odds with French royalty. Uh, so, so there are political reasons. Uh, this said, for, for an intellectual like Baudin, mind is superior to body. South is superior to, to north. The South is the source of all religion and, and philosophy. Uh, and he cites approvingly uh, Morocco and Abyssinia as specifically religious places with lots of churches or lots of of mosques. Uh, but he does point out that this this is a question of predisposition. There are, after all, excellent Scandinavian humanists, which proves that people in the north are not not absolutely condemned to stupidity. But also um, a vision of the world which he extends in, in terms of religion uh, in another book to one of complementarity. That here there are different, different peoples with different kinds of aptitudes. Uh, it's even better if you, if you have a world where people have different aptitudes to, to which they can all contribute rather than being at each other's throats. But this is. This is, Mon, uh, this is Baudin's way of, of using uh, climate as a means of classifying people. As the, the book moves into the 17th uh, century, you fix your gaze on the Jesuits. And uh, anybody who knows anything about the Jesuits knows that uh, they come with a sort of stock arsenal of very colorful uh, characters. Um, Matteo Ricci is probably, uh, the most fascinating, uh, Jesuit figure. A lot of very funny pictures of him, uh, wearing Chinese garb, uh, you can find on Google, but 
your one of your chapters covers the Jesuit mission to China, um, which, among other things, opened up to Europe a new ability to write and read about China from firsthand, highly knowledgeable perspectives. In this Jesuit writing, right, there was no illusion of the validity of any kind of metaphysical relativism, but they did call for a comparative or yeah, a sort of comparative, um, situational approach to proselytizing. Um, and as I mentioned, the most fascinating figure in this story, uh, at least in the early phases, is Matteo Ricci. So for the listeners who don't know, could you introduce Ricci, his engagement with China, and the legacy that his writing and the, its continuation by his successor bore uh, for the broader narrative of um, the Enlightenment tradition, but also for the story in your book. Of course, the, the Jesuits were, uh, as far as orders went, the new kids on the block. Uh, Jesuit order was only founded uh, in the late 16th century. Um, and in that sense, needed to, to make its mark. Uh, one way, of course, was to convert uh, lots of the world. I mean, they, they weren't the first. The Spanish um, Franciscan, Dominican, and Augustinian missionaries had, for example, gone to Mexico and, and collected very um, interesting and detailed accounts of uh, Mexican and, and Peruvian religion. But these were for internal consumption. Uh, the Jesuits realized that with a, a growing interest in travel literature, uh, they could develop a broad base of support by, by publishing. Uh, but also, they had um, different ideas about how to, how to convert people. Uh, and their notion was essentially a comparative one. You had to pitch your message to the people you were trying to convert. So the, the Jesuits found themselves in China, but they were confined to Macau. Uh, they were still under the dominion of the Portuguese. The Portuguese were aligned with the Jesuits. The Spanish were the Franciscans and the Dominicans. Who, uh, and the Jesuits and the Franciscans and Dominicans did everything they could to undercut one another. Um, but uh, Ritchie starts out uh, under Portuguese sponsorship in, in Macau, and the, cha the Chinese allow Catholic priests in Macau as long as they stayed there. They had no problem with Chinese, with a priest preaching to um, preaching to European Christians, they they were less enthusiastic about trying to convert Chinese. But of course, uh, the Jesuits didn't want to stay um, in in Macau. They wanted to get all the way to Beijing. Uh, so how did they do that? Well, the idea was what kind of social role could they adopt that would be acceptable to Chinese? What's the closest thing to a Jesuit missionary? And the first answer was both uh, extremely astute and extremely wrong. And that was uh, a Buddhist monk. All you had to do was shave your head, wear simple robes, and, and you, you didn't have to beg for your food, but just about. Uh, and, and everybody would recognize you as a sort of heretical Buddhist. Uh, the problem was, uh, in China at the time, uh, Buddhists were almost as socially marginal as Europeans. This was a terrible way to make friends and influence people. And so Matteo Ricci asked himself, who, and, and, and Ricci was an Italian aristocrat. I mean, even within the Jesuits, there were difference, differences in social background. And Italian aristocrats did very well uh, doing what Ritchie wanted to do, which was find out 
who had real clout? And the answer was, of course, the, the literati, the, the mandarins. Uh, all you had to do was dress in fancy robes, uh, grow a long beard, grow long fingernails, memorize the Confucian classics backwards and forwards so that you could discuss them in Chinese with Chinese colleagues and win the argument. And, and, and Ritchie managed to do all that. Uh, and so he moved from Macau further and further into the interior until at the end of his career, he, was, uh, he had an audience with the throne in Beijing. And this was literally an audience with the throne. The emperor wasn't sitting there. Uh, the emperor didn't see anybody. The best you got was admission to the throne. That was already very remarkable. But this is how this is how the Jesuits got in. But also um, how how the Jesuits reinterpreted Confucius and and Confucianism uh, in in interesting and highly controversial ways. Controversial in Europe. And um, you follow this up with a discussion of the Jesuits, um, uh, the Jesuit LeCompte. Uh, and he's another Jesuit writer on China whose work was influential at the time and then even into the Enlightenment as it touched uh, on, among other things, the world's chronology, the administration of empire, and a comparative analysis of China and Europe. Um, and you say, indeed, it even threatened to overtake Rome as uh, the yardstick by which Europeans measured itself. China did. Um, so can you develop this uh, a little bit for the listeners? Well, um, I, I, I should answer, I should mention that Leconte was uh, ultimately censured by the Catholic Church for, for going too far. Uh but he was read with even more enthusiasm by figures in the 18th century enlightenment who, who were all too willing to use uh, a Jesuit against the, the Catholic church. Uh, but for a long time, well, in Machiavelli, for example, Rome is the yardstick of uh, a political system that lasts for a long, long time. But of course, with China, you have an empire that is far older than Rome and uh, still going. This becomes a, a different yardstick. Uh, there was a problem. Uh, one of the reasons that the Chinese emperor was happy with the Jesuits was that, among other things, they were excellent mathematicians and astronomers. Uh, they're, they're still... Uh, you can still see the Jesuit observatory in in Beijing, right in the middle. It used to be the tallest building uh, around, and it's now the, the shortest. But you can see it with all the Jesuit um, instruments. Um, and um, what, the Jesuits were great because they were even better than the Chinese astronomers at predicting eclipses. They could not only predict them, of course, they could retrodict them. And this is where the problem lies. Because uh, the Chinese chronicles put the origins of the Chinese empire before what, you know, biblical chronologists consider the beginnings of the universe. And, and Jesuits weren't quite comfortable with having China older than, than the universe. Uh, of course, you could always claim that the Chinese were making this up. The problem is that these dates were backed with the dates of eclipses. And the Jesuits were capable of retrodicting the eclipses so that these eclipses should have occurred exactly when the annals said they did. And what was worse was that the Chinese astronomer system of reckoning wasn't good enough 
to retrodict them that accurately. So these could not have been Chinese forgeries. The Chinese forgers weren't that good. So this put the this put the empire either the empire was older than the chronology, or you had to fudge the chronology. And of course, the Jesuits fudged the chronology, found a way to use um, another translation of the Bible besides the, the Vulgate to add uh, another 500 years to the earth and fit China in. But this was, this was the beginnings of challenging um, notion, biblical notions of the age of the earth. If that wasn't sure, well, how could you know that this new system was, was better? In Quebec, uh, the uh, Jesuit writers that, that were in Quebec um, began documenting their experiences with Native Americans. And this inaugurated, as you say, the tradition of ethnographic works on uh, what is known at the time as, quote, the North American savage. They also changed uh, the north-south polarity that we see in uh, prominently in Baudin to uh, one that's more focused or has a, a more prominent role for an east-west polarity. So can you talk a little bit about the literature that came out of this environment and its legacy for the Enlightenment? Uh, well, first of all, one interesting thing about the East-West polarity is that it's intrinsically Eurocentric. Uh, not to say that North-South distinctions cannot be used Eurocentrically. They were all of the time. But uh, they're not intrinsically Eurocentric, and they're intrinsically based on the location of the North and the South Pole. I mean, there, there really is something north and south that's outside of uh, the heads of, of people, even of course, even though what they may mean is, is all um, a, a different question. But east and west are intrinsically relative, uh, but nevertheless uh, serve to uh, elaborate uh, a kind of distinctive scene. With this, the Jesuits are, are are faced with a very very different problem. I mean, if if as they discovered in China, if you want to convert anyone, you have to find out what moves people, uh, how they live, how they act, how they behave, what they respect. Uh, so the Jesuits find themselves. Uh, trying to adapt to uh, Native Americans. Uh, one of the earliest, uh, Paul Lejeune, uh, sets out with a group of Montaigne hunters uh, one, one winter to, um, to go out on a hunt. It turns out to be a disastrous year. They, they nearly starved to death and other other bands actually did starve to death. Uh, but uh, his description of his frustration is extremely vivid, particularly since when he's setting out, uh, he asks not to be in the same group as someone he calls the sorcerer, who is uh, a shaman and who is, not surprisingly, uh, the Jesuits' antagonist for uh, the, the kind of religious uh, interest of the band. So he sets out, and then to his horror, the shaman comes to, to join them, and the shaman and, um, and Lejeune engage in all sorts of of arguments, which Lejeune records uh, as a way of showing how perverse and stubborn the, um, the Native Americans are, but actually also 
serve to convey the Native American point of view, which is often how unreasonable and stubborn uh, the Jesuit is, is being, uh, and what he doesn't understand. The, the Montagnier are constantly telling him, you just don't get it. Uh, you, you don't understand what we're doing. Uh, so although his, his trip was a failure, uh, later did better with the, the Huron and, and ultimately the Iroquois. But, um, but he, he gives uh, a, a depiction of the savage who talks back, who becomes a stock figure of the Enlightenment. Um, so the next kind of thing that you look at, if, if what we were looking at before is, is about um, spatial distance, you have a chapter on what is known as the Quarrel of the Ancients and Modern. And this is much more about uh, temporal distance. Um, however, this debate uh, touched on, the, among other things, the fundamental conception of human nature. And it was an ideological site in which modern became associated with Europe and ancient with non-Europe. So can you introduce the... Uh, premise of the quarrel of the ancients and moderns, and then expand upon its significance in uh, the story of the book. Well, I, I I suggest in the book that for all sorts of reasons in the 17th century, comparatism goes underground. I mean, aside from the Jesuits who uh, transformed the whole point of the comparative enterprise, uh, it was discouraged both politically and, and intellectually and only comes back into its own in in the late 17th and the 18th century. Uh, and, and this begins uh, with the recital of a poem in the French Academy by Charles Perrault, uh, a poet best known these days for Mother's Goose Tales, uh, but who who recites this poem he's written about the excellence of France under Louis the Fourteenth, uh, and and suggests that France has outdone the accomplishments of the ancient Greeks and Romans, and this sparked off um, a furor. Those who thought we can never do better than the ancient Greeks and and the Romans, and so you had the the quarrel of the ancients and and the Romans and and the moderns. Uh, one of the most important partisans of of the moderns is um, a man named Fontenelle, uh, a nephew of the playwright Corneille, but also someone who is not a scientist, but very interested in science and scientific discovery. He, he writes uh, very witty dialogues explaining Copernican astronomy uh, and, and basically uh, is an apologist for the notions of moderns. Very much a notion that Scientific knowledge is cumulative. That is, humans don't have to get any better. Uh, he distinctly argues that this is not a question of moral progress of any way, shape, or form, or even philosophical progress, but just in terms of scientific knowledge. That uh, the very process of Correcting wrong answers leads to an accumulation of knowledge, which is the, the one area where the moderns have an advantage over the ancients, not because they're any smarter, but simply because they have something to build on. Uh, of course, the, the ancients... Uh, and, and here, this this spreads to 
uh, England. So you get uh, someone like John, uh, like William Temple, who was the um, who was the first patron of of, of Swift, and whom Swift uh, defended, uh, arguing on the contrary that uh, different different peoples have different attitude, aptitudes. You you can't. You can't, in a sense, compare ancients with moderns, but the first are always the best. So uh, Fontenelle imagines, you know, Native Americans becoming modern, uh, the moderns of the modern. They 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 outdo the French and and look at the French the way the French look at the Greeks and Romans, uh, whereas. For um, for Temple, if the sword, if if the Greeks and Romans are better than us, then who came before the Greeks and the Romans, and ultimately uh, suggests that their ideas were uh, derived from China and India. So that, that China and India are the ancients of the ancients, uh, just as the Native Americans are the moderns of of the moderns. So this. This notion about progress and, and knowledge expands beyond the, the borders of, of Europe. Yeah, so uh, following up on that, um, one of the things that you've touched on there, but we've also touched on throughout the interview, is that the way that uh, Europeans are thinking about others, both in time and space, is refracted through or responding to domestic contemporaneous concerns in the political or social or religious arena. And in the 18th century, much of this has uh, comes to center around the place that the accumulation of property plays in the development of civilizations, but particularly of European civilization. And over a few chapters, you look at a few different thinkers for whom this question of property accumulation was very important. And what they all had in common was that they use the, uh, the figure of the savage, who is often a Native American, as a uh, sort of test case for the, um, the impact of property accumulation and to problematize whether or not what Europeans were calling, quote, civilization was really all that it was cracked up to be. So can you talk about how this, um, the importance of property as a criteria of civilizational development came to pass and how uh, people in the 18th century thought about that vis-a-vis the figure of the savage, in quotes? Well, I, I should I should mention, by the way, that notion that the notion of civilization, like the notion of culture, was late 18th century. Uh, Civilization, particularly in France and Britain, culture, particularly in Germany, for for different reasons. So uh, for a long time, uh, the contrast was not between savage and civilized, but savage and, and polished or policed. Uh, or polite, uh, but nevertheless, uh, property was uh, a major issue in the notion of savagery. Was was property itself uh, a source of problems? I mean, already uh, the the sorcerer complains to Lejeune, the problem with you French is you always think in terms of mine and thine. Everything has to be yours. You have to own everything. Uh, we we are much more generous. We we like to give. We don't like to, to take. Um, and that gets developed very much by 18th century thinkers. Uh, most, most obviously, Rousseau in his uh, discourse on the origins of inequality, where 
uh, he starts the second section of the book with you know the first person who said you know this is mine and this is yours uh, and managed to fool other people into believing it uh, sparked the, the decline of you know, humanity and, and the origins of of inequality. So the questions of of inequality and and property uh, were confronted with the notion of natural humanity. Uh, Savages were natural, and uh, the French ultimately civilized people were in some senses unnatural, but unnatural in ways that were were not always good, that that property contributed to human inequality and human suffering, but also a natural religion could be contrasted to unnatural Christian morality. And there are so many uh, rich thinkers and chapters in the book that unfortunately, in the interest of time, we will have to elide here. Um, But to uh, close us out, um, you've mentioned it before and, and you talk about it in the book as well, that the story and the tenor of these kinds of discourses of the other uh, changes fairly dramatically from uh, the relative polyphony of the 18th century and before to the increasingly nefarious and domination-based discourse uh, of 19th century colonialism. So, yeah, as a coda, can you just reflect a little bit on the... Uh, on the divide there between those things, what has changed and, you know, overall what we can gain as scholars, but also, you know, informed citizens by understanding that, you know, the discourses of the other, even in a colonial context, were not uh, always what they were in the 19th century. Well, again, uh, on one hand, I suggest that um, all of these discourses about other peoples uh, were were in a real sense self-interested, although self-interested in complex ways. I mean, I, I, I think in that sense, all, all knowledge is self-interested. Uh, if people have no interest in, in knowing things, then they won't bother. So that um, these European discourses that s- attempt to understand who we are relative to other people uh, and, and how this addresses uh, political or economic or religious issues at home uh, also become a way to attempt to understand other people, if only to build up uh, an argument. So th- this is, it's a complex uh, dialectic between uh, notions of self-interest where you develop the, the picture that serves your interest and, and sincere attempts for better or for worse, and, and sometimes they're for better and sometimes they're for worse, to understand who other people are. Uh, it's only really in the late 18th or especially the 19th century that European hegemony becomes so well established that other people are relegated to positions of obvious inferiority and this becomes uh, this becomes a, a discourse that authorizes European European domination well but, yeah I was just gonna say yeah um, the book is called savages Romans and despots 
Uh, it is packed full of incredibly rich and uh, lucidly written analyses of a wide range of thinkers uh, over a number of centuries. It is, I would argue, a central reading to anybody who is interested in these kinds of discourses and in the intellectual history of European thought and colonialism more broadly. Uh, so thank you very much, Professor Lone, for being with me. Thank you very much, too. Thank you.